podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Suicide prevention is usually focused on the individual and within the context of mental health illness, which is a very limited approach. The fact that one in six Americans takes a psychiatric drug is critically important to take note. However, suicide and substance abuse is also linked. The CDC report shows that among those suicide deaths, which had a toxicology test, almost 80% had one or more substance in their system, with alcohol being the most common. Overall, in the United States, illicit drug use has been dramatically increasing, marijuana and opioid use especially. Why is there such a high demand for these drugs? Perhaps it is the focus on our individuality, on our own achievements, successes, or failures, the focus on detaching from the pain we feel rather than reassessing the way we think and the way we live our lives. Perhaps it's the focus on solving our own problems alone rather than connecting with others who can help us understand that it's not my problem, but our problem. Part of this statement was written by Monica Swan. My conversation today is with Lynn Terraford-Saul about suicide prevention. Lynn is a psychologist with a holistic specialization, and it is a certified drug and alcohol counselor in private practice for over 25 years. Lynn teaches specific strategies to cope with stress and the emotional ups and downs of life and addictive behaviors. In fact, she wrote Intentional Joy, How to Turn Stress, Fear, and Addiction from a Mind, Body, and Spirit Perspective. Here is the interview with Lynn Terraford Saul. In your own words, who is Lynn Telford Saul? Well, that's a big question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a personal, you know, life that I have and there's a professional life, which do you want me to just say a little bit about both? Uh, please. Yes. Okay. So professionally, I have a master's in psychology and I'm a certified drug and alcohol counselor and have been in the business, the counseling business for over 30 years. And I still love what I do. I uh, wrote a book a while back, Intentional Joy, that was is to really help those that are struggling with addictive concerns learn important self-coping skills. And I was just looking through it and enjoying it again. It's been a while since I looked at it. And then personally, I'm married. My husband and I are coming up on our 39th anniversary. We have five children between us. This is our second marriage. And we have three grandchildren. We live down the street from two of our sons. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah, which is really nice. Right. And, you know, my husband and I enjoy going to Mexico once a year for almost a month. And 
You know, I, even though I'm still working, I take probably six to eight weeks off a year. Hmm. That sounds so good. It's really good. Yeah. Thank you. What is your personal story about suicide? You know, I was, uh, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My mother was the alcoholic. I was the really good child when I was young and got good grades and, you know, made everybody happy. I was the oldest of three. And then as my parents slid further into alcoholism, you know, I hit my teen years and I really started acting out our family pain. So by I was barely 17. I had my son. I had two children before I was uh, 17. I placed the first one for adoption. And this story is told a little bit in Intentional Joy. And it's also told in the previous book I wrote, The Greatest Change of All. And so I was a mess. You know, as a teenager, I was really a mess. And I really didn't have any help or support. So I'm raising my son. He was the second child born and I'm 19 years old and I just hit a wall where I didn't feel like I had any, I really didn't feel at the time that I had any other choice. The pain that I was living within was so great that, you know, there was no logical thinking about, you know, what's going to happen with my son, how is my family going to be affected I just wanted to end that pain. And I had no skills. You know, I had no skills, no self-care skills at that time. So, you know, that led to a um, a really painful decision. And I'm grateful, very grateful I survived. And as I tell other suicide um, folks that are contemplating suicide, you know, (laughs) I don't think there's really any escape. I think we probably just take ourselves right with us. And so let's figure it out here. And every suicide survivor I have ever talked with feels the same way. This is interesting. I have been talking a lot about addiction. And I see that a Uh lot of the reasons to become an addict, it's always emotional pain. This is the uh, one of the main reasons trying to cope, survive emotional pain. Mm-hmm. And I see with suicide um, survivors too, or people who do commit suicide, they're trying to get rid of that pain. Yes. They don't know how. Yeah. So you list some reasons for high suicide rates. And um, one of the reasons you mentioned is isolation and loneliness. Mm-hmm. So my question is, what needs to change Um, something in us, in the people around us, or in our society? Well, I think it's all of that. Uh, But society sets the example and the expectation and the model for how we're supposed to live our lives. And then families, you know, every family has their own way of working with their children and modeling for them or not modeling for them healthy ways of being in life. So, you know, what's the ultimate answer? I think, you know, you, you, you're you nailing it when you say that um, people don't know how, yeah, what I heard you say is that people don't know how to deal with their emotional stuff, the pain of life. And, you know, I certainly didn't have any help in dealing with that. There were no, um, there was no instruction. And I, you know, I work with young people a lot in my counseling practice and there still isn't any real instruction. <laughs> about how to manage these wonderful emotions that we have inside and how to deal with the painful ones. And, you know, what I've learned is that it's very important to be able to identify how we're feeling, to feel like it's acceptable, you know, whatever it is that we're feeling is acceptable and to be able to work out those feelings. And we don't have to identify every single thing, but certainly the things, the situations that are causing a lot of stress or anxiety or depression, we need processes for how to under, you know, identify, understand, and then release that pain so it doesn't get loaded up in our body. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to tag on to that because there is so much trauma that happens to our children. 
um, growing up in families. And of course, trauma are things like abuse, but it's also like a really critical parent or a neglectful parent because they're working three jobs. And so I don't blame parents. I think for the most part, parents do the very best that they can. However, um, if they don't have the skills on, you know, what are you feeling today, hon? I'll ask my granddaughter. She hates this question, actually. (laughs) But I'll ask my granddaughter, look at the feeling chart and tell me, how are you feeling today? And she's, well, don't don't make me do that, (laughs) man. That's funny. uh, it, It is. But when she does it, she feels better. And, you know, it's a two minute process. <laughs> that's that's kind of an easy one with with little people is just to help them identify how they're feeling. Yeah. And I think also natural resistance to going inside. I don't want to feel that. Mm, right. And so, you know, the wall goes up and, you know, I don't make my granddaughter do this all the time, but. But I can see that she is struggling with something. I will ask her to, I you know, go over and look at the feeling chart and just, you know, see if she can see which which feeling she's having, and and then let's talk about it for a minute. And it's no big deal. I mean, we don't make any big deal about it. Yeah, yeah, I like that, Lynn. uh, This method. Um, You also mentioned internet and social media. Um, being one of the reasons for suicide rates to be high. Um, So my question is, what is your advice to deepen internet and social media connections? Well, I'd really rather see, I think we're plenty deep on the social media, internet connections. I I really, I think a big part of the solution is more face-to-face, in-person connection. Because that feels very different than when we're connecting online. Not that connecting online isn't good. I think it is. I think it's more about how much and being, you know, really clear that you're in charge of your time and not allowing the internet, um, social media, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, to be in charge of us. Yeah. Because that personal time, you know, with other people is a different experience. Yeah, um, I agree. Mm-hmm. But you don't you don't suggest that we stop interacting online, do you? No, I don't. You know, I don't think it's a reasonable expectation. Right, right. right. <laughs> but if we are in trouble with it, then yes. And one of the suggestions I make is, you know, take a take a, if you're spending. Notice how much time you are spending. If you're spending two or three hours on the internet every day and you're feeling really stressed and anxious, give yourself an hour away, you know, instead of spending two or three, spend one and do that for a month and see how you're feeling different and use your time to do something that's more nourishing or replenishing, perhaps like taking a walk, doing some artwork, uh, piddling in the garden, hanging out with a friend, um, you know, do something different with that time because it's what happens with the internet and any technology is it really hijacks the brain. Mm. Any addictive activity hijacks the brain over time. And the more we do it, the more the brain goes, got to have it, got to have it, got to have it. Yes. I like the idea of balance. Yes. Yes. And I feel like the internet, because I love being on the internet and writing and talking to people and stuff, but I feel that my body is not involved, just my mind, and that's not good. That's a good point. We should connect body and mind, and hopefully spirit too, right? I'm going to be asking you that question later about spirituality. The other reason you mentioned is for the number of people in the world. You say there are more people everywhere, but not necessarily ones we know, like, trust, or who value us. So my question is, do you feel that um, human values are declining? You know, I don't know about that. I know that I see that question and um, I see that in, you know, the media. And uh, I don't know, are, are values really declining or is it just that what? What would be the answer that really feels accurate to me here? Okay. You know, when I think about all the people on, on my block, for example, 
And um, they all look to me like their values are pretty much in place. Now, I don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but in terms of, you know, (laughs) they are greeting each other. And, you know, if there was a problem, I know my neighbors who I don't know well, but I know that they would be there if there was a problem on our block. So I think their human values are pretty, I think they're pretty solid. I do think, though, that we there is too much stress going on. And I think, you know, and also our, you know, we have so many people working multiple, multiple jobs just trying to pay the bills. That's very, very stressful. And I do know that church attendance is down. So, you know, church is one of those places where people get support to live a good life and live the golden, the golden rule and the 10 commandments and all that. And, you know, for some people that's very, very helpful. And the other thing I think is I'm not a church attender myself, but then I see from those that attend church and really feel comforted at um, not only from the structure of, of what they're receiving, but the community, yeah. the people that they're connected with. And, you know, I was at a, um, I belong to the United Way here in town, and we are really working with getting homelessness into a very different situation. And our community has really come together. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, the CEO of, of United Way shared, she said, you know, really what we're noticing when we look at all the reasons for homelessness and the ways to help people get out of homelessness is people need connection. Right, right. So, you know, this is just a small example, but when I'm out and about, if I'm in a grocery, you know, go out into a grocery parking lot and there's a homeless person there, I will often approach them and give them something, some bars or some oranges and um, make, you know, talk to them for a minute and get their name and just have a brief connection with them. Mm -hmm. And also give them some information about where some resources are in town. And, you know, I think... If we're not feeling really connected with ourselves or with others, that going back to the suicide question, you know, makes people more vulnerable. Oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, yeah you just said something that I believe with all my heart, uh, genuine connections, human connection. Uh, yes. That yes. is so crucial. Do you feel like, like organized religion should regain influence in our culture? Well, <laughs> you know, that's a tough one because it's a, such a personal decision to get involved with a church. And so I think there are many benefits. I've also seen, you know, some religions that can be a little kooky in terms of how much control they exert over their people. But I think in general, there are probably more positives than negatives. And so you know, I think each person has to feel into what they're looking for. And, um, you know, if they're wondering about going to a church, go and try different churches in their community and see if they find one that they really respond to the message and the people. And yeah, because, you know, for some people, it's really helpful. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I believe that um, community is very important, um, regardless of religious faith, mm-hmm. but it helps a lot yeah, to believe yeah. in, in God, which I'm going to ask you now. I wanted to ask you later, but I'll ask you now since mm-hmm. we're talking about religion and spirituality. Um, do you believe in God? I do. And, you know, I, <laughs> um, I live in the Central Valley of California, which is a very conservative community. And so we have a lot of churches here. And in fact, when I moved here and a long, long time ago, a small a small town right next to Modesto um, had the l- second largest number per capita of churches in the country. Right. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. It <laughs> is. So do I believe in God? Yes, I do. I was an atheist. I was raised pretty much as an atheist. Uh, my mother, part, other parts of my family are were are atheists. My grandmothers on both sides were Christian science, which is a very, um, it's a small religion. It's very health conscious, sort of like Seventh-day Adventist. Um, I didn't grow up in the church, but I grew up with my grandmother's loving care. 
And their message to me was God is love. Yeah. Hmm. And so that part makes sense to me. And, you know, over time into my 30s, as I was reevaluating, um, I did, you know, open up to what, for me, God got us all that is, that wonderful loving energy that if we can connect into it, uh, gives us a, a play, um, another way to center ourselves and help us feel like we're not just on this, you know, planet by ourselves. Yeah. Mm. What is your relationship with God, Lynn, on a daily basis? Well, you know, I uh, meditate uh, every, almost every day. It's a good, it's a really good stress relief for me. Um, and during that meditation time, I usually have some kind of a conversation, you know, I'm very, <laughs> I, I'm a little more metaphysically oriented than traditionally um, oriented. And, but I draw from all kinds of religions. So I take some of Christianity, some of Buddhism, and, you know, it's that, to me, it's that warm centered feeling that I get inside when I'm um, meditating or praying that helps me to feel love. And that's my next question to you. What is your definition of love? Oh, boy, that's a good one. Because, you know, there are di different kinds of love. There are, there is the, there's romantic love, which we are over attached to, I think, in our society. <laughs> yes, true. There's agape love, which is brotherly love. There's love of self, um, love of God, which is, you know, just to say, what does the word love mean to myself? I, I guess it means connection. One of the reasons for, um, another reason for uh, suicide rates to be high that you mentioned is news and negativity. Mm. Why is so much of the news focused on problems rather than solutions? You know, it's so funny because I've been around a long time. So I remember Walter Cronkite, and that time period where there were three channels, we only had three channels, right? The major networks. Walter Cronkite came on at five o'clock. He talked about the news for half an hour. Boom, that was it. <laughs> and so, you know, news has become big business and it's available now 24-7. So these news channels, I think they have, they're looking for things to be talking about and selling, so to speak. Because, you know, they're selling to their advertisers. And now, you know, there are certain news channels that are marketing specifically to a certain belief system, whether it's Fox News or CNN or, you know, it's just it's gotten kind of crazy, I think. Um, so we have to be really conscious about what we decide to tune into and how much we allow the news to bother us. And I have a great little story from my granddaughter, who's 10. We were in the car, so she's in the back seat, and um, she's telling me about how scary the world is and how many awful things happen. And, you know, there are all these murders going on and this and that and the other thing. And I thought to myself, what in the world? And <laughs> yeah. then it clicked. And I said, honey, are you watching the news? <laughs> said, oh, yeah, every day. Oh, no. And I said, honey, stop it. <laughs> yeah. And then I... You know, we talked about, you know, really, now think about it. Yes, and he just educated her a little bit about how, why the news is the way it is, about the fear and negativity, and then asked her to remember that, you know, most of the people in her family are good, her neighbor's good, her kids at her school, they're good kids. And so really, most of the world is good. Mm -hmm. The news just happens to show us those things that are that are either negative or scary. So we have to really limit what we watch. Yeah, that's great. What you advised her to do. Why do you think people expose themselves to any kind of negativity? Yeah, you know, I think about little kids and when we're born and the first few years, we are happy for the most part. You know, we're just ourselves. We want to be active. We want to play. And that's those are children that are not being plugged into technology all the time. Yeah. But by nature, I think kids are pretty happy, pretty positive, pretty loving. And then I think over time, as we're being socialized, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, I'm just saying it's the process, 
you know, we learn not as little people not to pay so much attention to our sensing and our feeling mm. and our body awareness. We, le- we learn to live more in our head with our thoughts. And, you know, it's part of the developmental process or, you know, our, our brain is evolving and the front part of our brain, the executive function is developing. So that's good. We need, you know, we need that executive function. But over time, you know, whatever we focus on is what gets bigger. Yes, right. So if we're focusing on what makes us happy and, you know, the things that are good in our life and good in the world, you know, that neural um, pathway in the brain develops. And if we're focused on negativity and fear and stress, then that tends to take more and more of our attention. We really have to fight hard. I have to work every day to keep myself on the happy, um, hopeful place because there, you know, there's just a lot of negative. There is a lot of negativity in the world that we see now because of all the screens. Yes. No, you're right. Um, But it takes um, awareness, like you just said, We have to be aware that it's not a good thing for us to expose our minds to any kind of negativity. Going back to something interesting you said about uh, developing the rationality part of the brain, uh, I think I see a lot of times that we don't connect the rational with the emotional. So that could help, like emotional intelligence, it's called. That helps a lot if we develop that kind of intelligence, that part of it. Yeah, and, and mindfulness. You know, we see that word mindfulness a lot now. Yeah. And it's, you know, like you're saying, it's about developing awareness and connecting our um, thoughts and our feelings in our body, kind of being aware of all of those and learning practices like breathing practices or movement practices that help develop self-awareness. So the last reason you mentioned uh, for suicide rates to be high is celebrity envy, the search for perfect kind of life. What distinguishes healthy admiration from envy? Well, that's a good question. And you know, there's nothing wrong with a little envy. I I don't, you know, envy is just an emotion. So I I don't want to demonize the word envy or jealousy. I think we're afraid of those words because we don't want to feel those feelings. And um, I I think they're just feelings and they help us if we're aware that we are feeling envious, let's say of, um, of all the, some particular celebrity, then, you know, a question for us to check into is, well, what's going on in their life that I really would like to be seeing in my own life? And yeah, I, I think we're a little cuckoo with the celebrity-ness of our world. We're, you know, we, <laughs> yeah. instead of honoring, you know, people who are really doing wonderful things in science or math or history or yeah. you know, from a philanthropical standpoint, instead, we, we give a lot of attention to the show, what I call the show and the go. Look at how beautiful I am. Look at how many wonderful things I own. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's very, yeah. you know, it it's not good for us. I agree. Because most of us are not going to become celebrities. So let's focus on making our own life the best it can be. And I, I'll share a quick thing again about my granddaughters. I have a 17-year-old granddaughter and a 10-year-old granddaughter. And, you know, <laughs> the little one, because she's the younger one, struggles with the ease and the intelligence and the athleticism of her older sister. And that's kind of normal for a second child. And I, I tell my little one, Shelby, honey, it's your job to be the best you you can be. Grace, that Grace, the older you know granddaughter, that's her job to be the best Grace she can be. And we all want to just be the best that we can be. It's my job to be the best that I can be. So trying to help her not compare so much because that's what part of what that celebrity glamour envy thing is about is we're comparing ourselves to someone that is very escalated, pedestalized in our society. And, you know, that person, that celebrity may be a lovely person. You don't even know. You're never going to know because you're not going to get to know that person. Yes. 
yeah, we will never get that close to them, to oh. know them too well. Right. And why do we want to? <laughs> yes. You said we are afraid to fear. It's like the fear of fear. Yeah. We're afraid to be afraid. Right. Yeah. right. Mm-hmm. To be vulnerable. Yeah. Right. That's, uh, that's probably mm-hmm. the main um, issue. Yeah. For men and women, it's a little different. You know, men are, uh, because I work with a lot of young men and they have taught me how they feel. And, you know, for men, their vulnerability is around feeling humiliated because, you know, as, as their fathers are teaching them how to be men, we not, and I think younger men are much better at this than previous generations, but, you know, we, (laughs) I have seen so much where, where men and moms do it too. They use guilt or shaming to teach their children right from wrong. And, you know, this is kind of a setup for how we start getting so negative, viewing the negative too, because if we are telling our child what it is we don't want, rather than what it is we want, it sets up kind of looking for that, for the, you know, following through with the negativity. I'm not saying this very well, but anyway, young men and men, I think, you know, the two anger, the anger, the, um, most challenging emotion they will say is anger but really when we get into it it's it's feeling vulnerable like you said and that comes often from feeling the possibility of humiliation Mm -hmm. right uh and for women what would that be what would the fear be well you know i think this is all human beings we fear not being good enough and you know how do we know we're good enough we we tend to look outside of ourselves in order to validate, you know, whether we're good enough. Do I have enough friends? Do I have enough pretty clothes? Do I, am I overweight? Mm, (laughs) Women struggle with, you know, so much body image and all of that. So, and I see a lot more anxiety today than I used to. Um, I see that people are feeling a lot more anxious. Yes. And you believe that that comes from lack of um, self-acceptance or self-knowledge? I think think it comes from looking outside of ourselves too much and also the stress of life, which is more intense. We have a lot of change going on. Um, We have a lot of change in roles. For example, men, you know, it used to be pretty cut and dry. They were the head of the household. They worked outside the home. They paid, you know, maybe the wife paid the bills, but they brought the money in. And now, you know, women are working, of course, and have been for a couple of generations, but they're often head of household, even though they have a husband. So, and, and men, I think, are kind of in this place of, oh, what is my role? You know, who am I as a man in this, in this society? Women are feeling empowered and good for them because I've been a supporter of women's empowerment since the 70s. Okay. Uh, but I, I notice I'm really, I'm kind of feeling for the guys these days. I understand the genders and the differences. But I tend not to focus on, on that. I focus mm-hmm. on the um, needs, psychological, spiritual needs that we have. Yeah, I think probably because of the length of time I've been on the planet, <laughs> I've seen, you know, so much evolution um, from, you know, women in the 60s and 70s, not feeling any sense of um, ability to act and really kept down. If you look at the old TV programs, Dick Van Dyke or, you know, oh, Father Knows Best, you see the real role divisions that were happening in, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And now younger people, I don't know how old you are, but younger people do have exactly what you're talking about, more of a generic sense of needs. Yes, right. That's a good thing. Yeah, I guess so. I never connected with humans um, this way. I never saw like men, women being different. I always treated them like, okay, you're like me. You know, we're just Uh human beings here uh, trying to make the best we can, right? Yeah. Um, You wrote, we don't change from negative to positive overnight. Retraining our brain to be more of a friend and less of an enemy takes time. Practice and patience. Mm -hmm. Pick one of the 
happiness books or apps or just start with one phrase. This is great. I love this that you wrote. Uh, may I be free of suffering? May I be healed? May I be happy? So, and then you say, repeat throughout the day whenever you're feeling gloomy. Yeah. So what are some of the books you recommend for this great dose of happiness? Well, you know, I, I, um, I have a couple of favorites. One is Happiness Now by Robert Holden. And he is a, he's someone that follows the Course in Miracles. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Course in Miracles, but yes. that is the spiritual program that I have felt most aligned with. So it's, you know, he, he talks about the research about happiness and, you know, <laughs> he did a, he did a group. Um, it was a happiness group. That's what he called it. And when he brought the people into the group to start the program, you know, he would send them home with a homework assignment to do something that made them happy every week. And every week they would come back and they wouldn't have done their homework. Mm. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> oh, you no. know, he's a great, easygoing, but really, really sharp guy. Anyway, he got really puzzled about that. <laughs> and that became, that's, he goes into that example in the book, our resistance to allowing ourselves to be happy. We have, we have resistance to that. And I think, and I'm sure he says it, you know, it has to do with we feel we're unworthy. Right. Well, why do we feel we're unworthy? When, when we're born and those little people, they think they're worthy of everything. But somehow we sort of lose that in the socialization process of growing up. Right. Not being worthy of happiness. Um, yeah, I see you're trying to connect that with uh, children, right? That they feel like mm -hmm. they... I mean, they can be happy or unhappy at any no, time. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um, I like the sense of responsibility for our emotions, like being aware mm. of them and expressing them in a responsible way. Because uh, if we if we are not aware, then our emotions could be highly destructive. And yeah, yeah, this is interesting. What you said about feel not feeling worthy of happiness. I don't believe in happiness. I believe in uh, contentment and meaning. And I think that's not the same. Maybe joy too, which kind of for me is a combination of having meaning, purpose, and peace. Mm -hmm. So you, you're kind of in, in uh, alignment with reality as it is. So there's a lot of acceptance, gratitude, appreciation. Mm -hmm. and, but not really, I don't, because happiness, I think, has been connected with pleasure and uh -huh. a lot of times pleasure you know everything that brings us pleasure will also destroy us in many ways so well we can take I, it to the extreme right right yeah because it's, a, it's kind of it's the core of the experience of the human beings right just to get addicted to everything right so. well especially americans i don't know about you know other countries i only know americans oh in brazil too everywhere <laughs> no, it's just human. It's just human. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And Robert Holden, he he um, has a, a, I'm going to share a quote from him. He says, there's a world between searching for happiness and choosing happiness. Mm, right. Okay. And, you know, he goes into, you know, it's really from the Course in Miracles and from what I've learned, it's, it isn't, we're not, we can't expect to be jumping up and down with joy every moment. That is really unreasonable. And, but to be able to choose to do the things that help us move towards happiness and experience more happiness, that's a reasonable expectation. And then to do the practices that encourage uh, feeling better, feeling happier, like meditation, prayer, exercise, yoga, breathing, you know, singing, listening to really good music. Those mm -hmm. things encourage happiness. Yes. Oh, yes. And I believe in also appreciating the simple pleasures. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when you're eating like a very sweet apple and oh. you just take that moment like it's the apple is good for you and it's also yeah. tasty. So it's a great yeah. thing, right? To be appreciated, yes. I think. I, 
totally agree. Instead of appreciating the ice cream, <laughs> that's not good for you. <laughs> well, the ice cream is good too sometimes. <laughs> well, sometimes, yeah, that's the key yeah, word. <laughs> I have an 80, 20 or 90, 10 rule. You know, I like something sweet every day, but it's, it's a small amount. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's good. Yeah. If you can uh, be disciplined. Yeah. If you can, and if you can't, you know, some of us can do that and some of us just have to abstain. So we yeah. have to kind of figure out where we sit on that spectrum. Yes, I agree. And I think it has to do with appreciation because to devour, you know, a whole, a huge chocolate bar, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't sound to me like you're appreciating really, you know, okay. what you're eating. You're just kind of trying to satiate some uh -huh. um, kind of emotional need by eating too fast with, without appreciation of whatever you put in your mouth. Well, and I think that's a really good point that goes back to something we talked about earlier, which is um, how do we learn to deal with our emotions? And, you know, I, because I work so much with addictive concerns, that is some, you know, work learning how to, you know, I, I use the phrase manage our emotions, but it sounds a little business-like or clinical and you know, really, it's about developing emotional awareness and some skills to be able to accept how we feel. And then, like I said earlier, identify and let it go, release it, however you need to do that. Talking to a therapist, writing in a journal, talking to a friend, talking to a minister or a priest. I mean, there are many ways that we can not only help ourselves release those emotions that we're struggling with or the, or the history, the pain that we're struggling with. Yes. Um, writing, it's really great. Um, writing is great. Yeah, it helped yeah. me a lot. And also music. Oh, boy. Dancing. Yeah. That's yeah. just yes. so good. Singing, dancing. Yeah, those are great things to do. Yeah, to release uh, emotional pain. Yeah. So my last question is to you, Lynn. What is your definition of well-being? Well, I think being happy and healthy enough. And I guess I would include wealthy enough, but I don't mean vast mm -hmm. sums of money. I mean uh, what a comfortable lifestyle, however you define that. Because money gets really cuckoo in our society. Yes. So, you know, that's well-being for me is being able to recenter after, you know, something difficult has come up. I had a difficult situation come up last week and I had to, you know, work through my feelings. And, you know, within took a few days to really, it was a big one, you know, to come back into my centered kind of balanced emotional place of, you know, pretty happy, pretty peaceful. Did I answer your question? Yes, I like what you said about uh, resilience and inner yeah. strength, just become tougher, right, um, inside. So we bounce back faster when something happens to us, unexpectedly especially. Yeah. So far, uh, you're the first person who mentioned money, connecting money with well-being. And that is so true because money is important. Yes, it is. Right? To, to kind of buy the right kinds of food, like, you know, organic food's better for you than conventional produce. Um, let's say uh, living close, close to nature, it's another thing instead of living in big cities. Mm -hmm. So all this takes money. It does. It does. I'll tell you, we are, you know, societally, we are struggling with the skewed, um, the skewedness of, the very, very wealthy and the middle class shrinking and the, you know, lower income folks, those, those people are really still very much struggling after the recession of 207, 208, people are still struggling. And part of that has to do with rents are really, really high. There's not enough affordable housing and, you know, jobs since, I don't know if it was in the early eighties, but companies you know, it was, there was a law that went into place that companies had to pay their, they had to cover their employees' insurance, right? Give them benefits. And when that law came into place, then companies started limiting the amount of hours that they would hire someone. So full-time has become less and less the norm. Mm -hmm. And part-time is the norm more now. And then, you know, people are working two or three jobs just to cover their bills. 
Yeah, that is tough. Another thing is balancing what we do, because if we make money from things that causes stress, a lot of stress, then affects uh, our well-being too. So we got to create the balance of being uh, having satisfaction with what we do and also making enough money to uh, promote well-being for ourselves and our families. Now, yeah. What leads me to my next question to you. Um, What is your definition of success? (laughs) Well, my definition of success is, um, you know, I feel like I have a really successful life. So for me, success is I have satisfying work. I have good relationships. I have a, you know, loving, good relationship with my um, husband of almost 40 years have friends and, you know, we have a paid off home, which is really good. We have no debt, you know, that I, we live really a pretty stress free life, except for this inner stress that I create for myself because I overcommit and tend to do, you know, too many things because I love helping and I love being part of the community. So that's always my challenge is to have enough replenishment time, but you know, I think it's a good question for everyone to check in with themselves about how do I define success? The other question I have people ask themselves when it comes to money, because I'm a certified money coach and work with women primarily and some couples about their relationship with money is how much money is enough for you in terms of how much money would you like to see yourselves make each year and what's the lifestyle you'd like to have? balanced with how hard are you willing to work and you know what is it you know what's the cost yeah yeah that's yeah that great questions um, yeah well i think all those things i mentioned you know i my husband retired a few years ago and (laughs) i have no interest in retiring so Mm -hmm. i think part of the meaning that that comes into my life comes from my work. You know, I am blessed to work with people every week that are looking to help their life be different. And so I get to support them on that journey. And that is, you know, sometimes it's difficult, but I love the connection. I love the forward momentum. I love the seed planting because some people come in for just a, a little bit because they're not quite ready to address their issue. Yeah, there's their challenge. And so that gives me a lot of meaning. And then doing my nonprofit work where I'm helping um, organizations um, that with fundraising that are helping women and children in our community. That is really great. Helping others and mm-hmm. having a meaningful life. The, mm-hmm. These two are always connected. Let me go back to my last last question sorry i said that a long time ago with the last question but then like oh it's so interesting talking to you hey, about I'm, all I'm these having things. a great time <laughs> yeah me too um so, so my last last question is uh final questions here what are three things about life you know for sure well one thing is we're all gonna die <laughs> yeah true oh <laughs> And, you know, as as one gets older and older, one feels that more and more closely. So, (laughs) Um, hmm. and that, you know, it's really up to us to create the life that we want um, within certain circumstances. I mean, if there's a country that's going through war, then you're just doing the best you can to survive. Uh, You know, there are certain circumstances where, where we are forced to make do and to limit our possibility. But in general, in this com- country, we have, we have so much possibility. So I think it's important to, to try to fulfill yourself, however that is. Yes, I agree. So want death, helping yourself. And the third thing? I think love, connection. I think that's so important. Yes. Uh, friendship, you know, a relationship, if that's something that you want for yourself or can manifest and bring in for yourself. I, I think connection is essential. You know, we are community oriented beings. We are, we need each other. Yes, absolutely. It has been a great and enjoyable conversation with you, uh-huh. man, truly. 
Thank you, Valer. Yeah. How do you say your name, Valeria? Valeria. You can say Valeria. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, or future projects? Well, you can go to my website, Lynn Telford Saul. L Y N N. Oh, you'll give them information at the end. Yes. And, you know, I've got a website that has a lot of free resources, including an MP3 kind of stress relaxation process. Great. That's great. Um, I have my book, Intentional Joy, that really talks about how to, you know, looking at looks at addictive concerns on many levels and really focuses more on the solution than the problem. The solution being self-love, self-care. And how do you do that? Thank you so much, Lynn, and talk to you soon. I thought it was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Lynn Terraforce-Hall, please visit her website, addictionmodesto.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, and Terry Clayton. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.